Thank you everyone for joining us on the fourth and final episode of this first segment of Continuum Chats. If you've made it this far, hopefully you've been with us to know what Continuum Chats is about. But if not, my name is Leah McKnight. I work as a cultural programmer for the African Continuum and I can give you just a little bit of insight into how this podcast was birthed and even what the Continuum is. So the African Continuum is a network of UC Davis diaspora identified staff, faculty, alumni, and students working to build connections and support for students on campus. Um, the black population is about 3% here on campus and that's including um, students, faculty, staff, everyone. Uh, so oftentimes students and staff are going through the same feelings on campus and so with this my amazing supervisor, Raynell Hamilton, had this idea and we kind of just wanted to bring it to life of bringing um, students and staff and faculty together to just share our struggles, our excellence, our aspirations and our valuable perspectives um, in an effort to connect with and help one another through this thing we call college. So we hope you will continue okay. to join us and learn from this conversation uh, led by our amazing guests that will be coming to the show. So, speaking of amazing guests, today we have two, um, without a doubt, very um, mindful people and um, just, it's going to be a dope conversation. So I'm really excited to hear them give us just a little bit of insight into um, their experiences and their thoughts. So, firstly, we have the director of the WRRC, which is the Women's Research and Retention Center. Cecily Nelson Alfred, who came to UC Davis from UC San Diego's Women's Center, where she served as the assistant director for four plus years. Um, she was born and raised in Chico. She earned her BA in Multicultural and Gender Studies from CSU Chico and her master's in post-secondary educational leadership from San Diego State. Um, Black feminist theory and womanism drew her to this work alongside her experiences being a biracial, bisexual woman and a student parent. So her main goals, well, she can speak more on them, but um, she really strives to co-create a space that centers queer and trans people of color. Um, so, and representing our students, we have Jason Jones, a fourth year African-American slash African studies and sociology double major and ethnic relations minor. Um, Jason is a spoken word artist, a musician, um, a poet, goes by the yoke, and uh, just a really dope um, student who has shown these talents on campus as well as done work in the Pan-Afro Student Organization um, while working with our high school youth as a student outreach assistant at the Early Academic Outreach Program. So he he has a lot of goals of working with youth and building up our future beyond um, his time in college. So this is just like the smallest little bit into these two individuals and they can speak more on um, all of the things that they're going to share with y'all. So um, we're just going to let them take it away. Thanks, Perfect. Aaliyah. <laughs> yes, thank you. That was a very nice bio. This is me and Jason's first time talking and meeting for folks who don't know. So I'm hoping to get to know you over this conversation too. Hope to get to know you too. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I think for me, like similar to a lot of black folks. So I, as Aaliyah said, I went to Chico State um, for undergrad. For those who haven't been to Chico, it's very similar to Davis. Um, college town, pretty white. Um, and I, I think it's one of the widest institutions in all the CSUs and I'm from there. So, Hey, <laughs> um, so definitely for me, like my black identity, I, I am biracial, but I identify as like a black person who's biracial. Obviously I have a lot of privilege in being light skinned and having a white parent, um, 
but I was really rooted in my blackness growing up. My dad was like affiliated with the Black Panthers back in the day in the Bay. And so I grew up really, um, yes, I'm biracial, but my blackness was like the crux of who I was, right? I think that's the case for a lot of us, especially when you're at an institution where there are 3%, 2%. I think that it was maybe like one and a half percent black when I was an undergrad. <laughs> um, and so I spent a lot of time in black spaces. And for me, where I really started to think about intersectionality and like what kind of informs my work now was going into black spaces and seeing how as a woman in a lot of ways I was silenced. Um, I remember sitting on different boards of black orgs and I would say an idea, people were like, worst idea ever, <laughs> womp womp. And then like a black man would say the same same thing like five minutes later and it was like oh my god you're brilliant like best idea and so there was just kind of that you know those weird kind of feelings those microaggressions that a lot of, a lot of us navigate around our blackness but i was like huh i'm with my people and it's still happening and why is it happening um and then also just experiencing a lot of erasure as like a queer person i know i spent a long time coming to grips with the fact that I was queer because I was like, that's, that, that's white people shit. Like, <laughs> pardon my, pardon my French. Um, <laughs> but like white people are, are gay, right? And I didn't really have a large um, queer community of color. And so I just kind of felt invisible in a lot of ways. Um, and then also becoming a parent, I had my daughter when I was 19 years old, I was in my second year of college and I saw how my life completely turned upside down it's in, in some really beautiful ways, but in some challenging ways. And her dad's life was kind of the same. Um, and so I was, it was really interesting to see how, um, what parenting a little black girl felt like and how um, parenting as a black woman, like the expectations that were put on me and were not necessarily put on to her father. Um, and so it was just really interesting to kind of navigate that, navigating class. And I grew up from a very like working class background. Um, so I spent a lot of time sitting at the county, getting benefits, trying to survive and doing what I needed to do. And, and um, I think a really telling moment for me when I was like, we got some work to do around black women's issues was when I was sitting with some peers in undergrad and we were all going around in a circle and saying, what's something we admire about other people? Or if you had to sum up this person with one word, what would you say? And when it got to me, my peers all said I was superwoman. Yeah. They were like, it's your strength. You're a superwoman. You get straight A's. You have a toddler. You are, you know, on the board of multiple organizations. You're doing the damn thing. You're always dressed. And I was flattered, but I was also like, damn, y'all don't really see me. Like, I, it, being superwoman means I don't get space to mess up and to like have a bad day and to wear sweats and to, um, you know, so that was kind of what set me on the path of wanting to do gender equity work. And so when I moved to San Diego to get my master's, like I started out and I was like, I want to be in a women's center. Most of my work leading up to that point had been, I worked with EOP, cross-cultural centers. Um, so doing a lot of like racial justice work was kind of the the focus and I was like I want to bring that to women's centers mm -hmm. so I do that now and I, you know it's always an uphill battle because women's centers have historically been super white um, but I think that's the lens that I bring now is I'm like a cross-cultural center and a women's center 
both need to be working on these issues. So I bring that lens of racial justice and queer queer theory to women's center work. So I, I told you, I warned you, I could talk all day about one of these questions. And then also my experiences as a, as a student parent, we do a lot of advocacy around student parent issues. And we know that that mostly impacts women, um, people of color, transfer students. I was a transfer student. Woo -woo. Um, so, you know, recognizing that all those things come together to compound people's experiences. Mm, that, thank you for sharing um, <laughs> your story because it was very, that was pretty, that was very inspiring because you, you, you really broke down some things that are hard to, to battle through. Like you come into terms with your sexuality and you come into terms with uh, intersectionality and how you could be black, but because you're not male, you still aren't paid attention to or listened to as equally. That I could, uh, I could empathize with the feeling of uh, feeling like you were ignored or you feel like you don't like, uh, you can't express yourself the way that you want to. And uh, it just in that feeling in general in, in where I've seen that in my own life. So I could uh, imagine how that was making you feel, but then here you are today and you, uh, you got through that. So that's, that, that was very, very uh, warming to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And, and I'm still getting through it. And honestly, like students get me through, like I learned so much from y'all. I look to y'all. I, um, the organizing that's happening right now, that's being led by mostly like black youth and like black folks in their twenties. And I'm like, Oh shoot, I didn't know that. Or let me follow this IG account. So I, I, I think, yeah, we're all getting through it. And, um, and it's not to say like being a black woman, it's worse. Right. But just like for you as a black man, the experiences you have, it's just really different, right? Like you, you experience things that I could never imagine right on this campus um, and silencing in a different way. Um, so it's kind of like, how do we come together and just be like, it's complex and messy for all of us and like ride hard for each other because of that, right? Yeah, wow. That's something that uh, it's really hard to get to that point too, because I think that between just men and women as a gender and then sexuality so uh people who are heterosexual versus people who aren't like that that disconnection that we've been taught to like imagine or think exists comes from us not us having to follow like all of these uh societal things that are put in place but if you really think about it like it doesn't really matter in terms of uh your our differences in socially because at the end of the day when we're being oppressed or attacked it literally is the people at the top holding power versus everyone else and we're all really on a on a plane all on the we're all really on the same plane as humans as humanness as a just human human in spirit that's really all we are but all of those things that are put in front of us it's very disgusting it's very nasty it's a, it's a very terrible thing that humans have done to one another. And I agree with you that uh, black men and women, we need to be more cohesive together, but it's very it's very difficult because there's a lot of hurt and pain from each side and, and what has happened historically between uh, black men and women. And that, that's something I, I really want to see too. Uh, and now I actually have a, a good question uh, to go off of that. Yeah. So uh, I want to ask this question. What have been the challenges of creating spaces for 
queer and trans people of color since we are now talking about how much uh, oppression that they face? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'll try to keep it succinct because like, <laughs> I don't want to keep people past two. But um, I mean, I think for me, a big challenge, and, and I'm, I'm just going to put myself out on a limb and say this, it's sometimes I think that the way that the institution envisions a women's center and the way that we as the folks who do the work envision a women's center is different. Um, so overwhelmingly, I do feel like I have support from like my supervisor, Maida Yamas, she's a beautiful human being, very supportive advocate and ally. But I just think there's a lot of ideas that like a women's center does women does women's stuff, which means like traditional, like like lean in type of white feminism, like Sheryl Sandberg and um, like, why are you doing black stuff in the Women's Center? Why are you doing trans stuff in the Women's Center? Why are you doing so much queer stuff in the Women's Center? So I think a challenge has been like just historically Women's Centers not being a space for that. Um, and assumptions about what a women's center should be. So it, we're almost trying, it's, um, I think you had this question later, so, so maybe you won't ask it, but like part of what drew me to UC Davis and the WRRC specifically is when I look nationally at what women's centers are doing, it was a little ahead of the curve. And a lot of the, the schools on the West Coast are. And so we're getting to imagine what a women's center that serves like queer and trans people of color can look like. We're getting to imagine how might black men engage with a women's center? Like how might people who have historically not found community with us get to engage with us? Which is really beautiful and exciting. And I and I love that. Like I love sci-fi and like futuristic stuff. So I'm always like, ooh, let's dream and imagine like what could be. But we're also laying the track while we're doing it. So you're kind of like, there's no there's not a model for what we're trying to do. So I think that's a challenge is that we haven't yet arrived at a place where, um, I'm gonna say cutie pop for, to be short for queer and trans people of color, where cutie pop are at the center. So there just aren't a lot of examples of how to do this work within the context of a university like UC Davis that is historically hella white, historically hella male, historically hella classist and ableist and right, all those things. Um, even as we have a black chancellor and we try to push through. So there's just, it's kind of like lack of, you know, it's, you know, they say you can't be what you can't see. And I don't think that's true because I'm like, well, somebody had to be the first, right? So they had to do it without seeing it, but it's just harder, right? It's hard to be, be a lone wolf. Um, it's also hard because I obviously, I have my own identities, but I can't know what every community needs, right? So I can't even know what other queer Black women need. I mean, my partner is a queer Black woman, and we have totally different experiences. So um, I'm like, I live in a household of four Black women, and we all have different needs. And that's just like one community and one intersection, let alone like thinking about what do our folks in the Manasa communities need? What do our like API folks need? What do our folks with disabilities need? So, um, you know, doing like revolutionary work that takes into account everybody is harder and messier and you're, you have to accept that you're gonna make mistakes. So that's been, I think, a big challenge for me um, that there's a reason why universities were reluctant for a long time to let in folks who weren't white men because they were like well how are we gonna 
how are we going to serve all these different kinds of people? <laughs> like they were scared to let in women because they were like, I guess we got to hire women now to deal with the women. So it's, it's just harder to do the work this way. Um, and then there's also the challenge of you said, Jason, it really resonated with me. Like there's a lot of divisiveness in our communities, right? And um, we don't know our history and we don't even know our present. Like the number of um, cis and heterosexual black folks I've engaged with who are, and I don't, I do not buy into the fact that the black community is more homophobic than other communities. I think that's BS, but there's still stuff we have to do. But I've engaged with a lot of black cishet folks who are pro Black Lives Matter, but are homophobic. And I'm like, but four queer black women founded Black Lives Matter. So to not be pro queer folks, you can't be you can't be pro Black Lives Matter. Um, and I don't really blame people because we just we don't we don't know. We're deliberately not taught our own history. We, we don't, you have to seek it out. Like people are not taught about our black, queer and trans elders, like Marsha P. Johnson. I recommend folks look her up if you don't know who she is. And phenomenal black trans woman who really started, kicked off the Stonewall riots, which led to pride and why we have pride, but also a staunch advocate for black issues. We're not taught about people like her. So I'm like, y'all need to know that like the MLKs and the Malcolms didn't exist without black women, black queer folks, and black trans women in particular. Like they were getting a lot of their knowledge and understanding of how to dismantle systems from our trans siblings. But we, again, we don't. So that's a challenge is like folks come in already assuming like, I ain't got time for the LGBT community because I'm focused on black stuff. And I'm like, but that is that is black stuff. And, and actually they're the ones we should be looking to and learning from because we have been um, from jump. <laughs> so anyway, that's a lot. But <laughs> Um, was, thank you for sharing everything. Uh, I was really absorbent because um, something I want to touch on what you said really quickly was uh, uh, how someone can be, black people can be Black Lives Matter, but they can't be for the LGBTQIA community. And I thought that was, uh, that I believe that too, because it's, it's, uh, it's hypocritical. And I think it comes from the sense that it's, it's, it's like a remnant of, of slavery like in a sense that we is we 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 were freed or we uh i don't even say free but we're no longer in that type of bondage but the the mentality is okay now we need to be this individual unit to attack the oppression overthrow the oppression we have to all be the same because that's the only way that we're going to overcome but if you really think about it like we're humans at the end of the day so we like different things. We want to do different things with our lives. And it's not, not going to be some, we're all going to be this one individual force. It's going to be, we're all just individual people that we also happen to be black and African descendants. So that means that we share that identity, but then human beings are not just like cookie cutter. So I agree with you. It's it, That's the only way we're going to move forward. If we have, we got to throw away all those differences, like every single, every single one of them and just, be okay with all uh, us all being just individuals moving together. I want to ask, yes, boom. So how can we as individuals help to create a more inclusive world? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I would probably be really rich if I could completely answer it, but <laughs> um, even though like, if you haven't picked it up by now, I'm anti-capitalist, so that's another, that's a conversation for another day, but um 
I mean, I think that, well, I would be remiss to like not name the moment we're in right now, right? Like this has been a long time coming. So I think for a lot of black folks where we are right now is like, like we've been here, right? Like we're like, we've been in pain. We've been like, you're not hearing us. So it's not new to us, but things are bubbling up. I am really like 2020 is, feels like a huge moment. Um, it's been kind of a, a shit show. Pardon my French again. Um, that's one of the things I do actually to dismantle professionalism is I show up as my authentic self and I talk at work how I talk at home. Well, I am at home, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but I'm like, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so I, I want to name like what's happening right now in particular. And, and like, I think I want to talk to black folks and to folks who are not black separately, because I think that there are different ways we might need to show up. So I actually think that a really radical thing right now that black folks can do is, is rest um, and take care of themselves. And I know like the theme of our episode was kind of, we were both interested in health and wellness. We haven't really touched there, but um, I think that's incredibly important to, um, I recommend if folks are, follow follow accounts on Instagram the nap ministry is one that I've really been getting a lot from and they just they're really promoting kind of like rest as a form of resistance so that doesn't mean we don't do anything but it means that we tap in and out and we don't push ourselves past our capacity it means that we check in on each other so I'm about collective care self-care is great self-care is wonderful but we need community care and collective care where I see you and before you're tired I'm like listen I got you you know sis I got you um, you don't need to be at the protest every night because um, we need to we need to sustain ourselves because this is like we're, we're in this for the long haul right um, so I so admire the people that are out there um, I haven't been on the front lines as much right now which has been weird for me because I was that that was me in undergrad and in my twenties. And I'm like, I got, I got kids and like, I got things to think about and I got a bad back and <laughs> I'm older than I look. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it's been really interesting to try to figure out. So I think one of the ways for me that I'm showing up and I encourage other folks to, who can't be out there is like to continue to elevate other people's voices, stay informed to the degree that you can. Um, I've been learning a lot just from social media. Twitter I, has been like probably the best place to get news. Um, shout out to Black Zebra Productions in Sacramento, which is a great local like news outlet. So that's been a great place for me to stay informed. But feel okay to tap out. Like if you decide I'm gonna do a 15 minute highlight reel of what's happening every day just so I know what's happening and then I'm gonna turn off my phone, that's okay. Um, I think for all of us, so Black and non-Black folks too, unpack the ways that we're kind of steeped in white supremacy what are the ways that i'm perpetuating the transphobia and homophobia or sexism like am i only elevating um black men who've been killed and not thinking about other folks um am i saying this is for my son what without recognizing that our daughters and our our non-binary folks are also in danger um, so I think like continuing to just learn and be open again, checking in on each other, taking care of ourselves. Um, I think for the folks who aren't black or for folks who have, who are like me and are lighter skinned or maybe even have passing privilege to think about, um, like how we show up and maybe to put forth a little more effort to educate white folks. 
um, and not to leave that to black folks, especially not to dark skinned black folks. Um, so I, I think those are some ways, but I really just believe as much as it sounds corny that that change starts from within. So like understanding and knowing yourself and sitting with yourself, that's my that's been my big theme of like being in my 30s and like, woo, like I really, I'm carrying a lot of tension and I, I'm not sitting with myself and I don't even know where I'm at. Um, so I think like that's really transformative when we become, I don't really want to quote Gandhi because he had a lot of issues, but like, but like when we become <laughs> like what we want to see, right? So I think we can we have to invest in ourselves and each other and um, unpack the stuff we've been taught. Um, and then again, I just, I implore people who aren't black, like educate your white and non-black POC homies, continue to do that. Um, I think those are some of the ways that I envision and, and just recognize we all have our role and be okay with yours. Um, like I said, I really, I, I like to dream a lot and so, I've just been thinking about like, as we tear down and I am not anti tearing down, but we have to think about what gets put in its place and we have to be ready to show up with love and light and to replace the systems that have got us here with something better, um, which means we have to be healing. I don't think we're ever healed, but we have to be healing. So whatever that looks like for you, meditation, yoga, music, like, um, reading time alone time together which is hard right now like a lot of us are isolated um yeah just healing i think is like a huge huge way that we can start to see that change because then you're going to show up differently in every way and you're going to be ready to hear people and ready to be like okay i'm i'm fortified and i'm down like i'm ready i got the energy and the stores that i need to like f stuff up Again, that was a lot, but <laughs> oh, it's not. Well, that yeah. made me happy. That that was <laughs> that made me happy to say that because um, I w I was on um, Instagram and I was looking at everything, and um, one of my friends she made a post and she just said uh, she it was a post about mental health and about how you should take a certain steps to, to maintain your mental health. And I had another friend he made a post and he said we all have different roles. So some people are guides, some people are teachers. Some people are frontliners and it made me feel so good. And then now you're saying yeah. what you're saying because it helped me to realize, okay, I know how I can help in a very particular way. I think that I'm 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 very good at uh, listening to other people's emotions and then putting it into words that maybe can uh, help them move forward. That's something I've found in my life. So why I feel like I can help is like what you said, raising other people's voices up. So if I hear the voices of someone else who I know is they listen to, well, I can take that and I feel confident to do that. And that's something that I was thinking about, okay, I wanna do that more. And uh, that's something I started doing. And it, it's very cool to hear you say that because when, like, when you said it has to start from within, not, it's, I, I, I promise you, I come across People and I, I say that just how you said it, and you're like, not to be corny. And they tell me that. They're like, they're not corny, whatever, you know? But it's not. That's the truth. You have to do it from within. And I, I really appreciated you saying that, for real. That was very, very warming. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so touched. <laughs> I think conversations like this, too, are like what 
leads to change. Like, I feel like I'm learning from, like, we're learning from each other. And even, I mean, I see you, Aaliyah, chilling and, like, and, like, shaking your head. I don't know. I just, I feel really, like, affirmed and lifted up. And and this is why I, I love getting to do the work that I do, because I get to work with, like, brilliant folks like y'all and, and, and then help, like, how do we all use our different, like you said, you're elevating certain voices maybe on social media. And then, yeah, there might be ways that I'm marginalized, but I'm also a director of a center on campus. And so when I hear black students or other folks who are marginalized sharing experiences, I can help elevate that and be like, listen, we need to do something. So it's just beautiful to see how we, it's like cooperative, right? And we're just um, operating as a collective that's like, okay, I got you. And I don't know, I, I, I try to fight hierarchy and like, I am older and I am a professional, so I'm here to teach. And it's like, no, I'm with you. And um, we're like colleagues, you know what I mean? So it's just really exciting to talk to y'all. Hmm. You're dope. <laughs> Likewise, you're very dope as well. Likewise. In your bio, I read a little bit about uh, your take on uh, your, your study of black feminism. So my, I want to ask, um, can you speak about black feminist theory and womanism and how it contributes to your field? Yeah, definitely. Again, I'll, I'll try to be succinct. So um, like like you, y'all heard in my bio, so I got my undergraduate degree in multicultural and gender studies. Um, I started out as a business major. I was studying accounting. So just for anybody who's trying to figure their life out, um, I was definitely somebody who didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So don't worry, please. That's me currently, I promise you. <sighs> It's, it's hard. Well, and then it is hard because um, a lot of the times as marginalized folks, if we want to learn about ourselves, we have to take those classes. Um, and it would be great if our experiences were just integrated into every curriculum so you didn't have to take. I mean, I love African-American studies, but actually a good friend of mine, Deanna Cabell, we went to grad school together. She works as um, the advisor over there. So shout out to AFAM. But um, it, it's, it sucks that that's the only space a lot of us get exposed to our history so but for me my kind of awakening into awakening into black feminism and womanism did come through like women's studies classes um mostly taught by white women but they thankfully integrated folks like audrey lord into their curriculum um so that for me was like my moment i listened to um a speech so i wasn't introduced to audrey lord through her writing but through a speech she gave um, I think it was at Oberlin College and it was like a commencement speech and I was sitting there just like again not to be corny but I was sitting there almost crying because I heard this um, queer black woman talking about things that I had never heard somebody like that talking about I thought feminism was like white ladies sitting around sipping lemonade and like oh we can't work we want to work you know like I was like I don't resonate like I've had a job every day since I was 15 years old right I've never not worked um and so that for me was like oh there's this whole school of thought that exists um that's for people like me um like it's not feminism it's feminisms and that's really like how Angela Davis constructed is like there's so many different feminisms um so you'll learn there's black feminism has a lot there's a lot of different schools of thought but if i had to sum up um some of the foundational thoughts for me um it's that i mean it's intersectionality so that as a black woman your experience of race sex class um i would add like 
sexuality, you know, age, all those things are, they're inseparable. They're, so I don't, it's not like I have my black experience over here and my queer experience over here and my woman experience here. It's like my queer experience is filtered through the lens of me being a light-skinned biracial black woman, right? Who's a parent. Um, my blackness is filtered through those things as well. So it's, you can't separate them out. And like you said, Jason, like it's, how do we learn to celebrate those differences and like honor them, but not let that divide us and say, not nah, bump that you're not part of my community because you're over there. And, and we're, you know, like we're divide and conquer is a real strategy of like white supremacy and oppression. Right. Um, and, it, and, and that's another thing they don't tell us is like, you know, the, the number of like Brown and API folks that were engaged with the Black Panthers and in movements for Black lives back in the day, like you'll, you don't hear a lot of their names either, right? So we've all been not perfectly working together, but like in solidarity for a long time. Um, and so that's like a crux of Black feminism. It's just like those things are not, you can't, you can't take them apart. Um, Another one is just that we have to address all forms of oppression at once. So when people say like, hey, we're focusing on like, why are you bringing up this black trans woman who was just beaten? Because right now we're focusing on um, police violence and, and black issues. And we'll get to that later. And it's like, no, we have to focus on everything at once, which can be overwhelming. And we all might have like a primary lane and that's okay. Right. Like you might decide like this is really more my outlet and where I speak primarily, as long as you're taking into consideration and not silencing when people are like, oh, and here's like a nuance to how I experience that. Right. Um, and so like I'm in a women's center. So um, I don't know if y'all watch like America's Next, Next Top Model. This is going to be a random tangent. But um, there's like a moment where Tyra Banks is explaining they were doing like a sexy shoot and she was like, but make it fashion. And so um, there's like a gif of it and everything. And so when I explain to people like the women's center to me is we do all the things. We do racial justice work. We do work around class, food insecurity, housing security, like all those things, but make it gender. So like, that's kind of like just the, the prism that the rainbow is, you know, being filtered through. And so you might have a lens that's like, this is kind of my lens, but I'm also like acknowledging that like transphobia and sexism and classism are operating within this thing, right? Um, so th that's like another kind of core part of black feminism and womanism. Um, and, and there's also like an element particularly to womanism that is, I think, I think that feminism in, in general should do this, but the way that I'm going to call it white feminism, the way that white feminism is positioned is like white men have power over us and we're trying to dismantle that and sometimes trying to just achieve and like be at the same station as them. I would say there are a lot of feminists who are white who don't think that way, but traditional white feminism was very much like white men are here, white women are here, we want to get here and we want to keep people of color here. Whereas, and, and like white men are doing harm. Whereas like black feminism and womanism acknowledge that like, it's not necessarily black men are here and black women are here, but like we're here and we're, and there's harm. And, but we're, we need to do this 
And so it's a little bit more, I think, forgiving. Some scholars in Black feminist thought go a little too far in forgiving Black men, in my opinion, where they um, don't want to hold them accountable for the violence against like Black trans folks and Black women. But it's a little bit different because it's not like Black men are positioned at the top. Right. Like it's it's just messier. So if that makes sense, like um, I recommend for folks who want to learn more about womanism, I was kind of introduced to it by reading In Search of Our Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker, um, who was like my favorite author back in the day. Um, and so, I mean, like Color Purple, like I'm sure a lot of you engaged with that text, but I found that text through like just deciding to read everything they had by her in the library because I didn't have a lot of money to buy books. Um, so that's like a really good way of starting to understand womanism. And she says, um, womanism is to feminism as lavender is to purple. And so it's just kind of like, a, it's, it's still connected, but it's like recognizing that we have a particular experience as black women, women and our black communities needs are different. So that's a lot. <laughs> um, I also have like other, um, other texts. Um, I recommend to folks, which is um, Patricia Hill Collins, Black Feminist Thought is a really good like grounding into Black feminist theory. Um, Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider is a wonderful text. And then one that I actually, I haven't finished yet, but I'm reading right now is How We Get Free. And um, it's edited by Kianga Yamada Taylor, but it's um, revisiting the Kambahi River Collective. And so it's a, it's a really interesting text where they're talking to some of the black women who co-authored this statement back in the day. And it's kind of like revisiting like where we were at in like the 60s and 70s with black feminism and where we are now. So it's, it's a cool read that's like kind of interview style to learn from your elders, but it's also through the lens of someone younger, kind of like how we're talking right now. And so it's like a nice marriage of like, you know, old heads and then like the kind of new ways of thinking about activism. So I know everyone's tired right now, no pressure to engage, but for those who are, are interested, um, those are definitely like some, some works that have informed how I show up. Hmm. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> very insightful, very, very insightful. I found it, uh, I remember reading, uh, it was a text, and I believe it was called The Black Feminist Theory. It was a, just a, a, a text, and it was a group of black women, and they wrote uh, their, mm. like, they kind of made like a, like a, a kind of like a declaration on their organization. Um, and one of the things that, something that you brought up was uh, that they, they, they see that white women can try to be like white men because they're white, but black women, it wouldn't the movement or I, I guess like the progression of the people as a whole because it really is on the backs of black women they would have to like have black men you, you they, they wouldn't be able to just do the same thing as white women do we would have to work together to some extent and i do also appreciate you saying that black women shouldn't uh forgive black men too far because i have also seen my own personal life like the effects that black men can have on black women and have had on black women in my life. And I wouldn't want them to just forgive them because then that person, that individual is not going to grow. If you just go, okay, I understand, you know, they're not going to grow. They're going to do it again. So I appreciate you saying that because more people need to hear that. Definitely. I definitely yeah. feel like more people need to hear that. 
I think there's also like an inherent in black feminism, like accountability as an act of love. And, and um, another one that folks might want to read is Bell Hooks All About Love. Um, but like when I say holding black men accountable violence, that doesn't mean through p prisons, right? Mm -hmm. um, side note, I'm also a prison abolitionist. <laughs> and so, um, like, I don't know, hearing you talk just made me think of that. And like, when you said that they're not gonna grow and I'm like, there's this inherently like a restorative approach that's accountability doesn't mean lock him up, call the police. Um, you know, we're not trying to use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about like, what are our, our, what are alternatives to like policing in ways that we can, cause I, I've called in black men um, in my life and it's always from a place, and, and you know, cishet black women who've maybe made some harmful statements about the LGBTQIA population. Um, but it's from a place of I'm like, hey, I really love you. And so, and I know you love me and I need you to understand something that you're doing that's harmful. And it's not like, you're canceled, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, sometimes we do need to let go of toxic folks, right? Like we've tried to educate and we might reach a point of like, okay, I can't engage with you. But um, yeah, when I talk about like holding black men accountable, it's really in black feminism, it's very much out of a space of like, we need each other and we love each other and um, we want to see each other grow. And so I'm extending this to you of like this education, this opportunity to like this restorative practice. Um, and and I hope people would do the same, right? Like I I always feel like it's such a gift when somebody lets me know that I've hurt them. I'm like, wow, you're really um, you must care and want to be invested in this relationship because you're letting me know, like, hey, you messed up my pronouns, and here I here's how I'm feeling, and like that means you want to continue the relationship. So that's that's I want to make it clear too that that's where I'm coming from. Just yeah, hearing you talk about like they're not going to grow, I'm like exactly like. There's a difference between cancel culture where we're just like, you made one mistake, so now you're evil, and like not holding people accountable at all. We're trying to find somewhere in the middle, which is, yeah, you should be held accountable in a way that promotes growth. I think about like, I'm sorry, I'm on a whole tangent. You're just like inspiring me today. <laughs> but I think about um, Black Panther, and um, I think about, um, why am I blanking right now on his name? Michael B. Jordan's character. Oh, uh, I know y'all know his name. I'm I'm totally having a brain fart. Killmonger. Killmonger, thank you. I think about the fact that like he didn't want to be healed at the end, and he. I'm assuming everybody's seen Black Panther by now, so spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, like, what are you doing? I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. But um, and he chooses to die, um, even though T'Challa is like, you know, we have to take technology to save you he's like it's fine and I just want to like what so you can put me in a cage for the rest of my life and then he chooses to watch one final sunset in Wakanda but I was sitting there and I was like but would Wakanda have prisons though like would Wakanda have thrown you in a cage like a, an African country that's never seen colonization because that's shit that we got from white supremacy right like policing and the ways that it is um so I was kind of sitting there like wonder 
wondering what would it have looked like? I told you I'm into sci-fi and like dreaming. Like what would the what would their solution because I, I was dreaming about an ending where he, he lived and he slowly reintegrated into Wakandan society and he gets his birthright that he was entitled to really to live there and to grow up there. Um, you know, like y'all have probably seen the, the proverb of like, if a child is like neglected by the village, like by their people, they'll burn down the village to feel its warmth. And I think about Killmonger with that. And anyway, I just, it was just interesting to me that like Killmonger's assumption was like, you're going to throw me in a cage and T'Challa didn't say anything otherwise. And I was, I just was like, damn, they got cages in Wakanda for people who do crime. Cause I imagine a, a, a society where black people um, have run it, just not having cages and not having that as an option, like having maybe some way of keeping him apart from people until he's safe. Um, anyway, I could talk, I'm going on a whole Black Panther tangent, but um, yeah, I just, I, again, I just think there's like accountability in like, in how we, in how we hold each other and, but like doing it with love and not using the BS we've been taught we have to do. You said a lot of interesting <laughs> things, a lot. I want to touch on a few very quickly. So one, uh, I'm, well, I remember the most recent one first. So what you just said about cages in in, uh, in Wakanda, I've never, I never thought about it that way. I mean, they wouldn't know, the, they wouldn't, how would they have the concept of prison if they were never enslaved? That in, Prison, I've also thought about that uh, in the sense that like, well, how do we learn to to put people away, like send them away or, or punish them or like even like hit them if they do something wrong? Like, how do you how do you learn that? Well, you, it, you would have to learn it through uh, kind of like a, uh, a generational, uh, what do you say? You're, you're, you're taking down knowledge from multi-generational trauma. That's the word I was looking for, like that. Yeah. That you would have that from a multi-generational, tra- uh, multi-generate, mo- many generations of traumatic things. So uh, that was really hard to put into words, but that's what I, that, that's what I was getting from you when you were saying that. And um, I thought that the fact that he also wanted to just uh, die, that he didn't want to be saved. I thought that, uh, that really spoke uh, volumes about the disconnection of black people or African descended people as a whole, because now you have one person that's born black in America and then you have someone who's born in Africa. And then there's that disconnection. How do we uh, see ourselves as one still people? Like how do, because in back in the day you can have different ethnic groups, but like now nowadays we're so divided in these individual little segments that it's very hard to even just move forward as one African people as well. I thought that was very interesting because I also agree we shouldn't cage people just because, or cancel them just because they don't know. Because if you teach them and they wanna learn, then that means like you said, they do wanna connect with you. They they just wanna figure it out. Uh, there are very toxic people who don't, don't care. They, they they just don't. They don't. They don't want to learn. They actually get it. They actually uh, get a boost of their ego from putting people down. And uh, black men who I've seen in my life that are that are very negative towards black women or have been is because quite literally them internally they hadn't processed a lot of stuff 
and they went out into the world and they weren't happy with their reality. So the only person that they could put all that energy towards was their children or their wife. Because, you know, it's like, that's the only thing that they have, like that's less than them. And once I figured that out, that taught me in my discovery of myself, how and what I should not do. And I, I learned that way. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, I see it in a lot of uh, young males my age or young male uh, observing people that I see in my age. Like, I still see that. I see it like the, the, the what do you say, like the, the seed? I can see the seed. Mm -hmm. And I, I almost like, I, I can see the tree growing as they're growing. And um, I don't know, like, it's like what you were saying about just building work and making the world more inclusive. Like that part of the work, that is gonna take uh, quite a immense force. And uh, yeah, it was very interesting hearing your whole perspective on all of that because you really opened my mind to uh, some, some concepts that I wanna look more into. Like, for example, why do we put each other in cages like what is it why do we do that you know why why did we think that that was okay and and how do why do we think that that's gonna help it's not gonna help you're making the person be internally you're forcing them to have an internal conversation with no resources you're not telling them how to do it they're just stuck doing it so i i, I appreciate that Oof, yeah that is that is so real <laughs> thank thank you for sharing that i have to say i know we're running out of time but um as much as like there are a lot of problems in the world and um you know i don't want to be like pollyanna and and be like it's all good like you just be kind um like half the corporations are saying right now but um i do i see a lot of reasons for us to be to celebrate and i see work being done um again we're not in a perfect place but like i've been so excited to see some of the ways that even just through social media that like black, a lot of young black men have been able to explore themselves and like be in touch with their whole full selves and, and be joyful and be feminine and have peak hair. And like, I love like Lil Nas X, like that's my nephew. So, you know, like getting to see someone like him have a platform where people are supporting him and sure some folks are not supportive, but like, I don't think he could have been who he is now in the time when I was younger, you know? So um, I just like, I, I love black joy and I love that we're creating that for each other in the midst of everything. Um, I had somebody post on Facebook a, a video that was just like black people laughing for like a few minutes straight. And I just was like smiling the whole time. And just the fact that like we, as much as social media and like can be a, really really oppressive tool and can be overwhelming and leads to mental health issues like there are these ways we can find little pockets of community and i can be like yes nephew like yes okay i see you like and um i don't know i just i'm excited like i think y'all are so much more free um than where we were and so it's i do see change happening and it makes me really i like us i'm raising I'm raising two little black girls and um, the conversations they're having and like in their classes and their experiences are definitely, um, it's not where I had hoped we would be, but it's still, it's vastly different from what I experienced. So yeah, I'm just, I'm really grateful for like the space today for, 
I don't know, I feel really uplifted and energized. Like I'm gonna go into my weekend with a lot of <laughs> positive energy. So I, I appreciate you, Jason. Yeah. I, I appreciate you, uh, Cecily. I, I think that, uh, well, not, not that I think, you really did give me a lot of valuable uh, knowledge and just your uh, perspective as well. Your perspective is very valuable. So thank you for sharing it with me. Well, let me just say it has been truly just a great conversation to listen to. I think outside of interrogating, you know, our own minds about how we center groups that can be left out of the conversation of Blackness, thinking about, you know, our Black women, our Black queer people, and like the list can go on and on, our Black disabled, you know, all those things. So um, outside of that, I think one of the, one of the, just one of the things that I took was this kind of idea of like self-care not instead of but uh like community care not instead of self-care and but on top of um self-care and just how we cater to each other and kind of like come together so i think my challenge to listeners is just um to take care of yourself and your community in the way that you can um especially with everything that's going on right now and just as we continue as black people um, to move in different spaces and um, deal with different situations. So thank you both. Um, to wrap up our episode, we have our last little segment called Davis Favorites. And the question that I want to ask y'all is what has been your favorite, um, I don't want to say thing because I want this to be like academic, but what has been your favorite thing that you have learned throughout your time at Davis? Um, and it can be, you know, a, a resource or just something someone told you or just like in your classes, what you learned. I know, Jason, you're wrapping up class of 2020. Uh, so you're wrapping up your time on campus. Um, so, yeah, that's that is the last thing I would love to ask y'all. Favorite hmm. thing about Davis. I would say my favorite thing has been um, definitely the people, the people that I, I came across in a and the type of energy I received from them. Because I would say that growing up, I, I, I promise you, I was not around people that were really trying to influence my mind. I, I could count them on my hand, like on one hand. So when I left uh, LA to go up north, I had a high hope that maybe I would like finally build friendships. And I built I, I built my first solid friendships by the, when I got to college. So I would say that that was definitely my favorite part. Like doing that having those experiences mm -hmm. that's real i think for me it's so hard like to sum up but a thing that i've learned in my time at davis so it hasn't been in the classroom <laughs> but um something so i came in um as a as a director at the wrc and i supervise um career staff where we're all pretty much the same age that's been really interesting and we're all um queer women of color and our team is largely like queer and trans folks of color. And um, y'all are just brilliant. Like at UC Davis has such brilliant students. So that was exciting, but I think in some ways kind of intimidating. Like, ooh, am I gonna be smart enough or do I know enough theory? Or everybody was like neoliberal and I'm like, what's that? Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> I think that has taught me though, like how to actually engage in 
in authentic community with people and engage in community care and to be okay with being a director and a leader, but that not meaning I have to be the smartest person in the room or I have to have all the answers. So I just, I've learned not humility per se. I mean, I like to think I was already pretty humble, but like I've just learned how to be more comfortable with not having the answers and with letting students check on me or, or learning from students and, and like having it be more of an exchange. Um, and kind of letting go of that traditional way of leaders do this and professionals do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Well, thank you both. And thank y'all again, just for your thoughts, your time, your energy. If y'all knew, you knew like this episode has been a long time coming, but I'm so glad that, um, we're, we're able to really see it through. So, um, so yeah, once more, thank y'all both. And thank you to everyone listening. And we hope you join us again in our next Continuum chat.